Hi, listeners. Just a quick note that this episode does contain some references to physical and sexual assault. Hi, I'm Danielle Fenner. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. And welcome back to the pod. Training wheels are coming off. And today we are here with Cha Ramos. Cha and I went to grad school together and she's the best. And we are so excited to have her here. She is a multidisciplinary theater artist with an apartment self-described as filled with books, swords, and altars. And fittingly, she specializes in intimacy and fight direction and is also a dramaturg, playwright, and performer. Some of her recent projects include Intimacy Direction for Company on Broadway and Dom Juan at the Fisher Center at Bard College. Uh, She also performs with The Vixens on Guard, which is an all-female sword-fighting Shakespeare comedy troupe. And, uh, the coolest. <laughs> she's also been uh, dramaturging new works by Jose Rivera and Leslie Avazian, teaching intimacy and stage combat, and writing some of her own plays. And not that it's a competition, but we went to undergrad together, so I've known her longer than you. This is basically the reunion <laughs> podcast. Love it. It's true. You know, it's fine. Like, we're just both dragging our friends onto the podcast um, because they're great. So, because we're great, and when you're great, you have great friends, great minds, etc. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, welcome to Cha. Uh, we're gonna start with a little bit of an icebreaker of just like what's something you've been into lately, whether that's something theater related, which it often is just sort of by the nature of what this podcast is, or a TV show, or something you've been reading, doing. Yeah, I'd be happy to share. It's funny because I was trying to think of theatrical things to share, but ultimately I was like, the thing I actually want to share is the fact that I have been using tarot cards um, quite a bit as a dramaturgical tool, um, as well as a sort of closure tool coming out of like tough rehearsals or you know just really high octane kind of content in rehearsals that I've been using tarot cards a lot as a way to decompress as a way to think about character in new ways and so I'm I've been on this like very witchy journey with tarot cards that that's like my thing right now I love that I've also been getting I've been getting really into tarot with some of my friends same I've been trying to like pull a daily card essentially mm-hmm. lately to learn the deck but say I need to know more about how you use that for dramaturgy and and I I have to say I actually know a dramaturg who does something very similar so like you're not alone this is a thing this is amazing so one of my favorite things um and I've really been using it as a writer primarily, but I'm curious about using it as a dramaturg on other people's writing. But I will do tarot pulls for a character, um, or I will do tarot pulls for a moment that I'm not sure where it's supposed to go, or I'm stuck, it's like a writer's block kind of thing. 
And so I will do a tarot pull, pull for that moment or for that character to just spark like what could be the next thing in the journey or what could, where could this go? And I find that it just opens up the possibilities beyond what sometimes when you are alone in a room or one-on-one -on -one with a playwright, what your own brain allows for, the tarot cards can just kind of invite more things into the space. So that's how I've been using them. I'm obsessed with that. Mm -hmm. So great. How many decks do you have? Too many. It's now it's <laughs> it's becoming a bit of a hoarding thing where I had <laughs> one deck that I knew I loved and that I knew worked and then I was gifted a deck that I fell in love with and now I think I have four or five. Oh my god. You don't need that many. But I love them. I still only have the one that's like the original Rider Waite deck. Mm -hmm. Um and I want to get a new one and I'm like intimidated because there's so many. Well, and then there's, you know, there's tarot decks and there's oracle decks that are like outside the major and minor arcana. And there, there's so many options. Yeah. So I won't be going there just yet. We're going to we're going to stick to the OG <laughs> arcana. I, I, went to a, I went to a winery with some friends yesterday and they had board games and stuff. So we played Clue and we chatted and we were just like, we're drinking wine. And my friend. Give me drunk Clue. Yes. <laughs> And my friend, it goes, guys, I brought tarot cards. So we were just like in at this beautiful winery reading tarot for each other. It was so amazing. Incredible. I love it. That's the best. Um, I saw Cost of Living by Martina Mayok on Broadway the other day. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, the Broadway run closed yesterday as of when we're recording this. Um, but if you have not read Cost of Living, please do. It is exquisite. Like, I left this play. I saw it off-Broadway when it ran off-Broadway pre-pandemic. And I loved it then. And I knew I wanted to see it again. There are new cast members in the Broadway run who were not in it off-Broadway. Um, and I just, I had loved it then. And I walked out of it, this the Broadway production, just texting everybody I knew that it was extraordinary. It is, I love it so much. Um, it won the Pulitzer for a reason, we'll say that. Um, there, there are some Pulitzer for drama winners that I don't think should have won. This is not one of them, this <laughs> should have won. And um, I'm obsessed with the actress Katie Sullivan, who is in uh, the lead role and well it's a four person play so sort of like everyone is a lead mm -hmm. it's sort of two pairings of people um and for those who don't know the play it is about two disabled individuals one of them is uh, a man with i don't know if they define it in the text but cerebral palsy or something of that nature um and he's uses a wheelchair and he is hiring somebody to be his sort of day-to-day -day caretaking assistant, help him shower, get dressed, that sort of thing. Um, and then the other woman, played by Katie Sullivan, who I'm obsessed with, is uh, a woman playing, or she's, she's playing a paraplegic character, but in real life is also a double amputee um, and of both of her legs. So is also a wheelchair user and then and is just 
one of the most unique actors I've ever seen. Like she has this, the play takes place in New Jersey. And so she, I don't know if she's putting it on or if it's her actual accent, but a real heavy Jersey accent, loud, amazing voice and presence and super sarcastic and just hysterical. And I've really never seen another performer like her. And I am obsessed. She's amazing. And Tony's for all of them. That's so exciting. Tony Award for Best Ensemble now, right? It's so exciting because that play is so beautiful. And I've actually never seen it done. And I didn't get to go to this production. And so it's so nice to hear when you're like, I, I love this play on the page. It's so good to hear that it's being done well on the stage. Like, that's just lovely. And I would say, like, I mean, this isn't not that this isn't true for the other performers, but who are just in it. But particularly Katie Sullivan and what she brings to the role is something that I that like isn't writable. Like it, mm. it I would never envision it when just reading the play. I was just so, so thrilled to see her again and so thrilled that they did this on Broadway. Um, and this production also props to MTC, Manhattan Theater Club. It's where it was off Broadway initially and now it's in um the it was in the Friedman Theater, which is Manhattan Theater Club's Broadway theater for they really took the content of the play and embedded it in the entire theater experience. Like it's one of the most accessible productions on Broadway as it should be since it's about disability and also every production every Broadway theater should be offering these things they really uh used it as an opportunity to be a model for other theaters and what they what accessibility options they offer that's huge that's so cool I'm so jealous that you got a chance to see it because I feel like it that that's just a play that I feel is going to be theaters are going to perceive it as difficult to produce and so I am sad and makes me a little um, nervous about like the future of that play actually getting seen by different audiences. I'm jealous because I don't know if I'll have a chance. Mm-hmm. I would say one plus to that is that most regional theaters or a lot of regional houses are like much newer construction. They're newer buildings than Broadway houses. Yeah, and it depends. So, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking in terms of like the physical accessibility of the spaces. Mm. Yeah, that's that they probably have more renovations at least. Yeah. And like it's been a massive issue. You know, the fact that the theaters are like some of them over 100 years old and landmarked makes the actual structural renovation kind of not doable. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Alex, what what are you into? (laughs) Um, I think theater wise, the thing that I saw most recently that I really enjoyed was Dance Nation by Claire Barron. I saw the only Theater Center production. I feel like I always have to caveat this with like, yes, I house manage it only. Yes, I know like half the people involved. But yes, it was also really good. And part of the reason you know it was really good was because people walked out like like every single production. <laughs> like that, like in anger. If it's out of anger, I love that. I think that like that's a good show, and like I loved every every bit of it. So Dance Nation is about a middle school dance troupe, and they're young dancers, and they're competing, and it's literally just about that, about their various experiences. But the characters, even though they're all like around twelve, thirteen, are played by by adults. 
everyone is at least was at least 24 years old in this production I believe and there's just people of it's a really diverse cast and it really brought up a lot of uncomfortable stuff from middle school for me that I had like repressed in the best possible way. Um, just like all of that like awkwardness and being 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 just a pure weirdo, you know, um, and being so <laughs> like dedicated and thinking that like this is going to determine the rest of my life. It was a really, really beautiful powerful production about female friendship and I mean there was one monologue in particular that really just like gutted me and for this production in particular I mean if anyone is listening from DC hi um you probably are aware of Bridget Bridget Cleary who is a local actor and she is just absolutely phenomenal she just brings so much to every single role and leaves it all on the floor the dance floor the dance floor the dance studio floor highly recommend this production has closed but highly recommend if you get a chance to see dance nation by claire baron yes they're gonna scream pussy at you just like just accept it and move on And if you think that a 13-year-old girl has not heard pussy in her life before... A 13-year-old who has been on the internet? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which I I actually thought that was really interesting about this production is that there was really no mention of, like... There's not a lot of mention of social media or or anything like that. Um, So I just thought that that was pretty interesting. But it it didn't feel awkward in the way that I think some plays that are set, like, in contemporary times can feel awkward that people are not using those networks the way that we use them. I think that's one of the brilliant things about the play is it's, like... They're in an environment of like this dance studio, mm-hmm. these rehearsals where like they would not be allowed to be on their phones anyway and they wouldn't want to be. Yes, exactly. It was just so well done. And I applaud everyone who worked on it and everyone who had to talk to the angry patrons afterwards. Mm. But yeah, uh, Dance Nation, big fan. I love the idea of knowing something is a success when people are pissed enough to walk out. Well, and I thought that it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a shame that things were happening at such a rate that the artistic director had to start, they started sending out automated emails before your performance with a huge letter from the artistic director saying, this is why I programmed the play. Sounds like the flick at Playwrights Horizons. Really? Did they do that as well? Yeah. Wow. People were so mad at that play <laughs> and Annie Baker in general. And like that, a similar thing, like he, he released, I'm sure the only artistic director is actually like taking that as inspiration because maybe this, the, yeah, I'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. I think it's a little bit of a shame because then you're not you're not going in completely blind, but, you know, to each their own. Our grad school, one of our grad school classes had like a no such thing as spoilers mm-hmm. motto. Mm-hmm. Um, because with theater in particular, it's like you can hear about something, a plot point, a set yeah. piece. Yeah. Any of these things. And it's like never going to actually convey the whole experience. So well, it's not true. really yeah. that much of a spoiler. Yeah, it's part of the reason yeah. I'm a I'm an advocate for content warnings, particularly when folks bring up the sort of argument that it spoils the action. The beauty of the theatrical event is that just because you know 
that there's going to be something related to this particular mm -hmm. topic doesn't mean you actually know what magnificent thing is going to appear on stage. It just means that if you have, if you think you're going to have a response to that topic, you can be prepared for it. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm all for content warnings, 100%. I still try to do the thing where I'm like, I really want to try and go in really blind. I don't like to listen to cast recordings before I see the musical. Mm -hmm. I yep. like to try and do that. But like content warnings are like, they're essential. They're and essential. That, that is its own episode because there's so much debate yeah. on it. But I mean, I'm, although we yeah. will touch on that in this, it is in the yes, notes. It is in the um, notes. But speaking of, that's a good segue to just let's just start with Cha. Just talk at us, talk at the listeners about how you define intimacy direction. And one question that came up while we were researching specifically is um, the difference between intimacy direction and intimacy coordination. Like, we get the sense that maybe that's just an industry thing between theater versus mm -hmm. film and TV, but let us know. Yeah. It's like how um it's like how dramaturgy is called something like the different elements of dramaturgy are called completely different things in the film industry. You're a script supervisor, you're a researcher. And it's like, no, you're you're dramaturging. Just just call it that. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it, right? Like the the sort of uh beauty and difficulty of language. Uh, is what are the sort of connotations of different words to different communities. And so really what it comes down to mostly, a sort of mostly acknowledged difference or how we use these terms is that in general, intimacy director or intimacy choreographer is for live performance and intimacy coordinator is for recorded media. Those terms largely come from the equivalence in the violence, right? Staged violence or, you know, combat or stunts. So stunt coordinator, fight coordinator is in film and TV or any recorded media, whereas fight director or fight choreographer is what you usually see in a theatrical playbill. Uh, but even within those terms, there are more terms. People are being known as intimacy specialists as intimacy consultants. And so to me, what it comes down to is what is the work that I am doing in the space? So the intimacy part of it, the way I define intimacy for the stage, which is primarily where I work, is in theater, is looking at scenes that have any kind of intimate touch. So that could look like a hug between a father and daughter. That could look like simulated sex acts that could look like a childbirth scene. Um, so that's kind of like intimate touch. Or it could be anything that I think of as, as sort of nudity or partial nudity or hyper exposure. And that's a term that comes from a company called Intimacy Directors and Coordinators that I teach with. And hyper exposure I really like because that could mean anything that an actor wouldn't wear in a rehearsal room or wouldn't show in a rehearsal room that they're being asked to show on stage. That could be scars, that could be their hair, that could be many number of things. And so an intimacy professional might be utilized to help support any of those moments. If I am directing, right, doing the, the direction of a scene of intimacy or doing the choreography in a scene of intimacy, I want those titles. If I'm on the phone with a theater about best practices around consent in general, 
then I might be a consultant, right? Then I'm an intimacy consultant. So it really depends on the actual labor that's being done around these scenes of intimacy. Now, importantly, I caveat that with, that's how I define intimacy, right? The word intimacy is so broad. To me, all theater is intimate, right? That's just like the nature of the art form. So there are folks who will work as intimacy professionals who are there to support a scene of a mental health crisis, right? Who are there to support mm. a scene of um, racial violence. And I personally might support a scene of a mental health crisis if there is intimate touch involved in that scene, right? If a best friend is supporting their friend and literally physically lifting them up or that, then I might be there. But I don't personally feel like I have the skills to support a panic attack happening on stage. So there are other fields and other things that sort of beautifully are cropping up around intimacy work, like, you know, mental health coordinators and, you know, um, cultural consultants to support different kinds of moments. And so that's been kind of the joy of being involved in this field is how it has, because it's so new and because it's being defined in the zeitgeist and in the culture as we do it, the different sort of specialties that intimacy professionals have and the different specialties that are cropping up around how we care for artists, all artists, as we create scenes that can be difficult and joyful that are just heightened in some way in the theater. So yeah, director and coordinator tends to be the easy answer, theater film. And then outside of that, there are a million other terms that can be defined a million and one ways. I did not know about the cropping up of like mental health consultants. And again, like as we just discussed, maybe consultant isn't the word, but I love that so much. And it's just about, to me, like what I'm getting from that is that we're just like, as an industry, prioritizing the inclusion of people who've actually have lived experience of a thing yes. in the creation of yes. the thing. That is so cool. And it's it's also great because I think that the industry is also just becoming aware of all the ways in which people have not been supported in the rehearsal space and the as well as in the rehearsal space and in performance and the way that people have been like kind of disrespected also and how we can prevent that. That's so cool. That is just so cool. Yeah. A lot of what we talk about within the community of intimacy professionals, right, is that there's there's certain things that to be an ethical intimacy professional, you should have some knowledge in. And one of the things that I talk about a lot with like up and coming folks who want to do this work is knowing something about trauma-informed spaces and trauma-informed work, which is baseline, right, really simplistically, the understanding that when you're coming into a space, more likely than not, the folks in that space have some kind of trauma, right? Human beings hold some kind of trauma. Rather than assuming that, like, we're all good, it's assuming that people are on in different places in their healing journey from various experiences and life experiences. And all it is is about understanding that that can affect the work, especially if the work is directly related to whatever trauma they are on a healing journey from. And so just acknowledging that can make such a difference in a room. 
that is acknowledging yeah. that we are humans telling stories that are about humanity and that that can can bring stuff up and that we can have tools to make it healthier to tell those stories. Yeah, I mean, that's it's so great and I I think one of the questions that we kind of wanted to get into is while we're on the subject of how the industry is evolving, mm-hmm. how there's been kind of this these questions cropping up and I think more in in TV film than theater just because they get more publicity and bigger platforms to go from is actors, directors, collaborators, you know, some some are taking the viewpoint that things like intimacy direction or I guess intimacy coordination, you know, it'll ruin the moment. It'll ruin the fire in the sex scenes. It will um, take the spontaneity out of the acting and ruin the craft. And like how, how (laughs) wild, how wild. And I was wondering, like, have you encountered collaborators who have been resistant to working with you? But have you had kind of some of those kinds of attitudes? Have you confront? Have you had to confront those kinds of attitudes in your work? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that one of the kind of important and one of the most difficult things about working in intimacy is is really walking into the room with no assumptions and walking to the room being ready to meet everyone exactly where they are. And so you absolutely walk into rooms where there are folks who have done things a certain way for their entire careers. There are folks who have been taught a certain thing in their undergraduate experience or graduate experience or, you know, the school of hard knocks, whatever it may be. Um, and, And so a lot of these folks, you know, the resistance comes from fear, comes from not knowing, comes from often thinking they're gonna mess up, thinking they're gonna do something wrong, or maybe that they have, that they have harmed someone in the past, that they have overstepped a boundary in the past. And so I try to meet the resistance also where it is with with as much empathy as I can hold, right? To understand that these are in some ways very new tools in some ways, ancient tools to just check in with one another. And I think in some ways the, the my sort of response to the, we'll lose the spontaneity or we'll lose the realism or whatever that kind of resistance comes from is, A, the reality of scripted theater and scripted film and television is that there is no spontaneity, right? Part of the actor's talent and part of the actor's sort of magic in some ways is that they can create spontaneity, right? That they can say a line as as if it has never been said before, ask a question and receive the response as if they have never heard that before eight shows a week. Right. And maybe it's not creating the spontaneity. It's just pretending that there is spontaneity. Exactly. And believing it, even though you've done it eight times this week. So to me, it's like, well, how, how, why does this need to be any different than that? right? You know what your lines are. You know what is, you're not going to receive a new line from your scene partner tomorrow in, you know, so, but how do you receive Mm -hmm. it in a new way every time? So there's that. The other part of it is that I'm like, okay, but also even in real life, in intimate situations, we should be checking in with one another, right? So I'm like, 
part of it is also my, my advocacy for consent yeah. in real life, you know, air quotes around that, is, is we should not be completely spontaneous. We should be talking to our intimate partners. We should be making sure that they're okay with what we're doing. And the kind of overall idea that consent is sexy in real life um, can be true in the rehearsal room too, right? Is if we know what's going to happen, we can fill it with our actorly muscles and our actorly tools, right? If we know that hands are going to go in certain places every time eight shows a week, then we can fully bring ourselves to it without being worried that a line is going to be crossed. And so I often find that the opposite is true, that at least as an audience member, often audiences can feel the awkwardness or can feel the tension or can feel the unsureness when two actors don't feel safe enough to fully throw themselves into a scene of intimacy. And so I find the guideposts actually help with making it feel spontaneous for the audience. So that's my, those are I, my I completely elevator, elevator speeches for those particular kinds of resistances. I wrote that down too, like the, for the audience, like at least speaking personally, like when I see an intimacy director credited in the playbill, I feel better about what I just saw. Yeah, it, same. Absolutely. And it also speaks to, and this is just sort of a more general like psychology concept, but that you have, you'd find often that you have more freedom once you set boundaries. Yes. And I, I think that that's the thing that is so exciting and so joyful about this work is that the rooms, as I bring these concepts into rooms, and some of them are rooms that no one there has worked with an intimacy professional before, the sort of relaxedness, the ease, the like breath out that happens more often than not is just very fulfilling for me as an artist and as a human being is to say, yes, if we know what we're doing with confidence and we know what to expect from our scene partners, the sort of acting that's possible, the storytelling that's possible can sometimes be beyond our wildest dreams of what we thought the scene could be because now we actually have the boundaries. We actually know the sandbox we're playing in. So then we can just play. Since it's so new, Cha, how did you get into this? Yeah, so it's fascinating because it the like origin story of Cha as intimacy director um, <laughs> is is sort of many pronged because and that's why that's why I call this practice both a new practice and an ancient practice, right? Is that there are people in the theater who have been caring for each other in these ways in a way that didn't have a title, right? There are many sort of costume designers and, and wardrobe specialists who have found ways to cover people and, you know, hide moments. There are directors who have taken the time to listen to their actors around what their boundaries were in order to stage a scene like this. Um, there are actors who have taken care of each other and have checked in before they did a moment, right? And so I think part of my origin story is that as a Latin dancer for many years, both, you know, socially and familially and professionally, I was doing these things with dance partners. As an actor, I was checking in 
with my fellow actors before we did scenes of intimacy and kind of sometimes choreographing ourselves because that's what we had. Uh, as a director, sort of in undergrad, I tried to figure out ways to stage these scenes so that they would be repeatable and not just every night do whatever you want in this moment. And then where it became sort of an actual career path for me was through my training in acting, I started training in stage combat and started finding fight direction as a calling for me, having this background in dance and a background in acting, that I just loved how you could create scenes of violence that were joyful for the actors to perform, or at least, if not joyful, consistent, repeatable, and within their boundaries, that to the audience felt so real and so visceral or so comedic and so ridiculous at whatever that the style was. And so I sort of fell in love with fight direction and fight choreography. And a lot of the sort of original creators and people who sort of named intimacy direction for what it is today were also involved in the fight community. And so I was taking a lot of the first classes in intimacy direction that existed because they were being given at stage combat workshops. And that's when I started realizing, oh, I've been doing this in a variety of ways that now these folks are naming and trying to create a pedagogy around and trying to create some standards around. And that's really how I got involved in it as a field that then, again, it's, it's we're sort of creating it as it is expanding. And so it's, it's been this ever-changing field and ever-redefining field. But that's really, you know, stage combat is the way that I came into it, which a lot of folks did because there are a lot of parallels in how we stage these moments of heightened physicality with the actor's boundaries in mind, with a sense of storytelling for the audience, while also keeping the actors as safe as we can. Yeah. Bringing in the fight choreography and staging violence as well, it's like, you know, something you and I have talked about a lot over the course of grad school was that um, just how closely those two things are linked. And, you know, how often in a piece of media, like a play, movie, whatever, do you see a fight turn into sex or vice versa? Yeah. It happens all the time. It's its own trope. Yeah. Breakup sex is a trope. <laughs> well, and that's, that's sort of the cool, exciting thing to me about this field is like, yes, I do both of those things. And depending on the show, I'm down to be hired as both the fight and intimacy director. But one of my favorite things is to collaborate with another person. So me be the fight director and another person be the intimacy director or vice versa, because there is something that happens in that switch, right? There is something that happens. In collaborating with a second person instead of you doing both yourself. Yes. Have you done both of those things? And like, how are they different? Yeah. So on that production of Dom Juan that you mentioned, uh, I did both the fights at intimacy for that show. 
And I think the, the biggest difference for me in practice is that there are technical aspects to scenes of intimacy, especially when you get into simula simulated sex acts or when you get into childbirth scenes, medical scenes. But there's a lot of intimate touch that is less technical. And really your focus is on consent and communication between those actors and consistency in where, you know, where touch is happening, how it's happening. Whereas in fight direction, there is a lot more technique or a lot more, there's sleight of hand, there's, there's masking in both techniques, right? Where you're using the set or you're using costuming to mask something that we believe is happening, but is not actually happening between those actors. So there's techniques that cross over, but I tend to find that in scenes of intimacy, my focus tends to be on the consent and communication. In scenes of violence, it tends to be on relying on the physical techniques that sell a story that is not really happening. And so it's, it's funny to do both in a show. And it really depends for me and my own boundaries, right? Modeling what I tell my collaborators to do is understanding that a show that has, you know, either a huge amount of both violence and intimacy or a show that has a particular kind of violence or intimacy that I don't feel I have the expertise for, I would rather split that job and be able to collaborate with a fellow artist on it yeah that makes sense yeah very cool very cool i want to know how do you feel like it's sp the knowledge of intimacy direction is spreading in educational settings i'm thinking mm -hmm. of like colleges and i'm thinking of high schools even when you were talking about different kinds of scenes I realized that my freshman year of college, I took two acting classes and in one, I was like sitting on a park bench in a scene and someone came up and clasped his hand over my mouth and like s to stop me from screaming. Like that was that was part of the scene. And like you said, we just had to kind of do it ourselves. And then in another scene, I had to do the thing where you like take a shirt off and like they see like your bra underneath or something and that was incredibly awkward to stage myself when i was 18 and like also i now can't believe i was asked to perform that scene in an acting class yeah that's those are the stories that like they break my heart because i've also i also experienced them personally but the amount of them that yeah. i hear from adult actors who i'm now working with who are like i wish i had had you in my high school, undergrad mm -hmm. experience, whatever. There are a lot of intimacy professionals working in those spaces and it is That's so awesome to hear. To hear That's from great them. to hear. And it's it's still small, right? Because again, the profession is so new and there's still very few of us honestly doing this work across the country, across the world. Um but there are more and more folks working in the university setting, working in high school settings. One of the big boundaries that I have personally, is that I don't work with minors, right? Because I don't feel confident in my own expertise in the legalities of that in, in general. But also specifically, right, I'm a big advocate for we shouldn't be doing certain shows at certain ages. We shouldn't be asking certain age folks to do certain scenes at all. Even if they are of the legal age to consent, we should not be doing them. We don't need to be doing them. 
So I have my own sort of advocacy around those things. Like I don't think an 18 year old should be asked to take off their shirt in a classroom setting. I don't see that being appropriate or necessary in acting training. And also I think there are a lot of folks who have expertise in those settings, who have been working in those settings, who have now gotten training in intimacy work and can bring consent forward practices to any environment, even if you're not, even if the scene is a hug between a father and a daughter, right? How do we bring consent forward practices to the high schoolers who are performing that scene in an otherwise very innocent, again, in air quotes, show? So it's, to me, it's, it's one of the kind of forefronts of this work that I am not personally on, but that I am really excited about and really excited to hear the work that's possible of just bringing consent education into theatrical spaces where folks are learning. Because the other thing about this work that is one of the most difficult things and one of the most important things is an understanding of power dynamics. And when the person who's asking you to do that scene is also grading you, the power dynamics get real iffy real fast. So that work is deeply important. And I am excited to like be able to say that, yes, I know folks doing that work in educational spaces. And I love, I just love talking to them and hearing. Yeah, no, I love that. That's so good. I love that it's now, it's working its way down to like the, the foundational level, you know? Um, Yes. The mm-hmm. training spaces. Well, and people, because people ask me all the time, how'd you get started in dramaturgy? And I'm like, oh, I dramaturged my junior year of high school, like high school theater. That's where like I found out different aspects of theater. This should be included a hundred percent. Yeah. As we're talking about like all the ways in which this field is expanding and growing, um, you know, we found July of this year SAG-AFTRA announced that they're going to open union eligibility to intimacy coordinators in film and TV. What do you see, like, do you foresee something similar happening in theater, whether that's like the stage directors and choreographers union or some other sort of association within theater? Yeah, there are a lot of folks. So I, you know, the person who I know personally, Alicia Rodas, who was part of the conversations with SAG around intimacy coordination, you know, it's just really exciting conversations happen to make that a possibility. And it started with really talking about intimacy protocols to support the actors who were part of that union. And so then the union just kind of came on board to intimacy practices in a bigger way and was excited to try to open membership to intimacy professionals. To me, in the theater community, and I know that there are many folks in the intimacy community who are advocating for unionization from a variety of different prongs, right? Either creating our own union or working with SDC or working with AEA, right? Or whoever it might be. To me personally, I do think SDC is where it's going to happen probably the soonest. And I think to me, it's the union that makes the most sense for us to be a part of. They've already opened to fight professionals in a bigger way than they ever had before. There are conversations happening both sort of in a official capacity with SDC, but there are also individual conversations 
you know, I've had conversations with a couple of SDC reps around, you know, can I use SDC rates as a way to talk to theaters around a specialty choreographer, mm. right? Because that is what this work is. So already SDC is like, hell yeah, use our tools, use our information, right? They're very, they're very open union. They're very exciting people to talk to on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Um, and so there are folks in the fight community and the intimacy community who are already in relationship with SDC. So yeah, that's my hope is to have more relationship, deeper relationship with SDC. I think that's the right place for us in the theater, but there might be other pathways. And I, I know of many intimacy professionals who are, you know, trying to find that space for us because right now it's us advocating for ourselves and working together as collectively as we can to do so. But yeah, it would be so exciting to have a relation, a, a formal relationship with SDC. Yeah. The advocating for yourself as an intimacy professional feels so similar and so overlapped with dramaturgy and mm -hmm. having to more or less like in certain cases teach your collaborators what the hell your job is while you're doing it so we're curious like in rehearsal rooms have you experienced that as um well you touched on how you experienced that a bit as an intimacy director. Um, we're wondering both about how similar or different you feel the prep work is for fight and intimacy as compared to like if you're just a dramaturg on a project versus, but also the difference in the prep work between fight and intimacy. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I realized, so the reason I went to graduate school for dramaturgy was specifically because I was working as a fight director and I was working with a director and I ended up sort of talking myself out of a job <laughs> because I told this director, you know, you've hired me to do this slap in this scene. It's as written, there's a slap in the scene. But I came and I saw the scene that you blocked that leads up to the slap and I was like, I don't think these characters actually engage in physical violence. It takes a lot to slap someone, right? I don't know if you've ever slapped someone or been slapped. I have not. It takes a lot <laughs> to get to that point, right? And so I was like, maybe there's a threat of violence in the scene. Like maybe someone kicks a chair or maybe, right? That we feel like it could escalate to an altercation, but I don't think you have built a scene that involves a physical altercation in this moment. And she was like, are you a dramaturg? And I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so, and the rest is history. And so, you know, there's a, um, a really sort of beautiful marriage of these things for me personally, in the way that I am a movement professional, in the way that I look at fight and intimacy is that I think I have always, even before I knew what dramaturgy was, looked at those moments as a dramaturg, right? Thought about, what is the context of this moment? What is the audience that we are performing to? What is the story that is being created physically on stage that either necessitates this moment or doesn't? And so when I'm reading as a fight or intimacy professional, when I'm reading a script, I am thinking about the dramaturgical realities of intimacy and violence in that play. So 
why is it happening? What is the background? What is the context within the story? What is the context in terms of our sociopolitical context, right? What is the context in terms of this theater company, this regional area, whatever it is. So I'm always thinking dramaturgically. I think what's funny is that as a dramaturg, I have, I'm realizing that I sort of like to focus on scenes of violence and intimacy because, because that is my expertise in this other realm, but also because I think the, the physical storytelling of those moments as a theater maker, they just tell you so much about relationship and plot and character and all those Aristotelian things, right? Is like a single kiss tells you a lifetime, mm -hmm. right? A whole play can exist in a single kiss. And so it's funny because whether I have the dramaturg hat on or whether I have the intimacy director hat on, I am thinking about how we tell the entire play in that single kiss. And so I think in a lot of ways, the prep work is very similar. It's just whether I'm thinking about the larger picture of what, how we're telling the whole play in a kiss or whether I'm thinking about the literal minute details of how we tell the play in a kiss, that's where it separates. Yeah. Those micro and macro levels. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So we were curious about how you assess whether moments of intimacy and, and or violence in a play, are they actually necessary? And how you navigate it when you think something in a script is maybe a little egregious, um, there for, for shock value, kind of like what you were just talking about with, you know, is this slap really necessary? It, does, it, does it speak to the reality of the characters that we're seeing? Right. And it's like there's the difference between that slap was scripted, but it was sort of made less necessary mm -hmm. by the other aspects of the direction in that production. There's also like when you're reading a script and it's it's maybe it's a new a new play and whether you're a dramaturg on it or um, considering whether or not to work on it as a fighter and intimacy director, I'm sure you've come across things where you're like, this is this goes too far for no reason. <laughs> and how do you navigate that? <laughs> Yeah, I, it's a really great question. And I think the, the way I try to enter the space, right? And this is the, the sort of blessing and curse of being a multidisciplinary artist, which I'm sure many of us listening, many of us in this room right now are keenly aware of, that, that you have to be really mindful of who you are in that space. So although I work as a dramaturg on new works and have a certain relationship with a playwright in those spaces, I don't have the same relationship with a playwright when I'm a movement professional in the space. It's just, it's not the same, it can't be. And that being said, what I try to bring into these collaborations is the fact that I do have experience and expertise and specialty in these areas. So what I can offer is what I offer to that director, which is I don't think this slap is necessary to tell the story the playwright is trying to tell and to complete the scene that you have started. And then that director can say to me, I don't care what you think, choreograph a slap. And I can be like, okay. Because <laughs> my job here is to choreograph a safe slap that is within the boundaries of the actors and tells the story the director and the playwright want. So similarly, when I'm working as a dramaturg, because of these, this intersection of expertise that I have, 
you know, a lot of new playwrights will ask me to specifically look at the intimacy in their play or look at the violence in their play for how it's written or how the story it's telling or, and so I can do the same thing. I can say, you know, you've said here that a kiss happens. Does it need to be a mouth to mouth kiss? Does it need to be, does it need to be a kiss at all? Is there just a touch that happens here? What are you trying to achieve with this kiss, right? And all those questions are super useful and it might change the direction a playwright goes or they might be like, no, I want them to kiss there. And it's like, okay, well, it's your play. Write it, mm -hmm. go for it, right? So that's, that's how I try to enter those collaborations is saying what I'm seeing, and I use that phrase a lot, is what I'm seeing is X. And they can say that's useful to me and I don't want you to see that, I want you to see this. And then I can be like, well, what if you did it this way and then it's like oh okay fully great. have had that experience but in, sometimes in like, yeah 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 no a hundred percent yes yeah the the what i'm seeing is is such a useful mm -hmm. tool and it's true that's all you're saying right what i'm seeing is this is that what you want me to see i love that intimacy direction is really shaping up to be another tool that we can use to take down the director as auteur trend of the American mm. theater. <laughs> For those listening, that kind of is the sense that the director is in charge. If there is like a pyramid of the a pyramid hierarchy of a rehearsal room or of a production, the director is at the top and the designers and the actors and the writer are all kind of like under the director. And there's kind of this idea that that's really how American theater has been structured since since quote, the birth of American theater, unquote, in the early 20th century. We were doing theater way before that, by the way. The, there's this idea that they are really the fueling the creative process. What they say goes, they're making their choices, and everyone else is kind of carrying them out. And I love that we are starting to slowly subvert this. And I, I also don't want to, I, I don't want to omit the fact that this is also a very, like, white male patriarchal it's all it's all enveloped together um as being the kind of the status quo of the american theater um that is now you know being disrupted more and more well and i think you know on a very personal note right i think the reason i got into theater or part of the reason i love the art form is because to me it is necessarily collaborative right it is not a solo art form and so whether you are in a space that is an autorial directorial space or in a the playwright goes and whatever's on the page is what you have to do or anything that makes one person one artist the center and doesn't allow for the full humanity of the other people in the room and the full expertise and knowledge and you know especially coming from actors the embodied knowledge of what they have to bring is just not art that I'm interested in making. So I too am excited that this role feels like a way to use power in the space because intimacy directors hold power in the space to use that power to level the playing field a little more, to make it more collaborative, to allow for more humanity in the space. But just like, yeah. have you ever read a script for something and had to make the call that you weren't going to work on it because you just sort of, because like 
something was just like really egregiously violent or like seemed and and violent I'm using broadly like in terms of also like intimate partner violence like that kind like any a broad definition of that yeah and I think it's something that actually studying consent and boundaries has made me better about my own boundaries and my own autonomy as an artist and it sort of is a I don't let myself get away with not practicing what I preach, right? So I can come into a rehearsal room and talk a lot of talk about, you know, individual artist autonomy. But if I'm not listening to my own self and my own gut, then what am I even doing? So absolutely, there are jobs I've been offered, plays that I've read, that I've said. And it's, it's not for me personally ever about the specific content. If it's like content-based that I don't think I have the expertise or maybe the lived experience or maybe the identity or maybe whatever that may be that I don't think I'm the right person for it then I'm sending you know I'm sending that person other names I'm like talk to this person talk to that person like they'll help like this is an incredible human who has a background in that content but sometimes for me the like boundary comes where I don't name other people's names where I don't recommend other folks is if I think a piece of art is unethical, right? Where I, th- I think that it's dealing with content in a way that can cause harm just by the way it is dealing with the content, right? And so that absolutely, I have said, no, thank you. And I'm not gonna recommend other folks to this because I think the content itself can cause harm by the way it's being handled in this written piece or by this director's vision or whatever that may be. and and. I've gotten better at that because of the tenets of this role that I'm like, I think every artist has a right to say, no, I don't want to do that play because I don't believe in its message. I don't believe in what it's going to bring to this world. Yeah, this that's world. what I meant by like mm-hmm. egregious or for shock value, that it's it's just not serving the story and is because of that is more poised to cause harm than to... Mm-hmm be artistically or to have artistic integrity the amount of new plays i have read that devolve into sexual assault for i don't even know why i just want to throw my computer out the window sometimes there's so many other ways to show what you're trying to say why do we have to put that on stage if it's not dealing with it in a dealing with the topic in a safe informed educated nuanced way and that's where my dramaturgy hat I am so grateful for every day because for my my own sort of emotional safety I have absolutely worked on scenes of sexual assault I've absolutely worked on really tough things and I fundamentally believe philosophically that it's important to tell those stories But because of my dramaturgy hat, I feel very equipped to read those stories and understand whether it's just being used as a plot point or being used as a sort of throwaway moment or being used because it feels like it's of the moment rather than actually integral to the story and to these characters that I can then say, okay, dramaturgically, I see that this is not 
supporting a version of the story that I am willing to tell. So I'm going to protect myself emotionally and spiritually and get myself out. I think it's helpful that I have the dramaturgy hat to be able to do that for myself. That is so great. We actually did want to like talk about intimacy direction, like as it connects to overall caretaking of everybody involved. So that feels like a really great mm-hmm. segue. And uh, Danielle, you know mm-hmm. more a little, you, a little bit more about the specific example. Yeah, that we were talking about. So I was. Th- it occurred to me because, and we've touched on this a bit, is that is the way that um, having an intimacy director in the rehearsal room and throughout the production and sort of integrating, embedding consent practices throughout the entire process also benefits the audience. Um, But then there are also certain plays where the content is challenging enough that further caretaking to a degree of the audience is necessary, whether that's in the form of a content warning or one of the examples I thought of was Off-Broadway, when Slave Play was at New York Theater Workshop, they hired, uh, I found this in one of the, I remembered this happening, couldn't find an article about it, but then found it in New York Theater Workshop's annual report from that season, um, that they hired a 10-person t- a team called the Audience Support Team that was one lead consultant and nine facilitators from social work backgrounds with anti-racism and equity, diversity and inclusion trainings to help facilitate and run audience discussions after every performance of Slave Play. Um, And then on Broadway, that did not continue, but they, uh, Robert O'Hara, who directed the show, offered the cast mental health days throughout the run just to really give them all a chance to take care of themselves um, as full humans outside of their job as actors to better enable them to continue performing this play that was very challenging in its content. And I think those were both really amazing examples of approaching this holistically where you're also thinking about the audience and you're thinking about everybody's well-being for the duration of the thing, not just on the days that you're choreographing these scenes in rehearsal. I was just going to say, I love I love that they did that. And I think to me, it's a really great example of, you know, Alex, you were saying earlier about sort of white male patriarchal structures that... I think that even within the intimacy direction field or in the way that we're hired, people can want a lot of things to fall under one umbrella because it's easier for them. It's cheaper for them. It's, you know, one person can be the expert of all these things. And to me, Slave Play is a really great example of of a collective understanding of how we deal with challenging content, right? That is, yes, you want an intimacy director to work on these simulated sex acts that have these many different power dynamics and right and you also want mental health days for the performers and you also might want advocates and facilitators for the audience and and that it's it is a holistic understanding of what it means to make art like this 
So to me, it's like, oh yeah, I love the spaces where I'm on a team of people who are all considering all the things that go into making content like this. That is not, oh, you're the intimacy director who most intimacy directors do have anti-racism training, mental health first aid training, disability justice training, right? We have those things because we are telling stories with bodies. But I don't want to be your EDI officer. That is not my job. And I have been asked to consult on content warning or like asked to consult on casting notices to make sure that we have language around the in scenes of intimacy that is inclusive and useful to us. But I love it when there is a team of people who are all thinking about how we ethically create art as human beings in space. And to me, the, the things you mentioned, Danielle, that say that, you know, the creators of Slave Play advocated for and worked towards was was that was was bringing in all the different people and all the different expertise that could make this a more ethical way of making art. It acknowledges also that everybody experiencing this play, whether from inside of it as an actor or as an audience member, is going to be coming at it from a very different perspective. And have different responses to different parts of it. Yeah, like the idea of there being a whole team of people is so exciting. And especially when that team of people are also each all coming from very different backgrounds and perspectives on the content or on the on what the job is, because that does only make it better for everybody. Even if you there's there's the fact that like New York Theater Workshop was like a short was a limited run. Mm -hmm. Broadway was an open ended run. I mean, yeah. then the pandemic yeah. happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also the fact that like there's a big difference between offering that kind of facilitation for mm -hmm. an audience of 200 versus offering that facilitation for an audience of like a thousand every day. As someone who has worked as an intimacy director, both on and off Broadway and regionally, what differences, if any, have you noticed between commercial theater and nonprofit theater? Oh, man. Like, in some ways, so many, and in some ways, not at all. I, th I think the kind of eye-opening thing for me, you know, as a, as a young kid growing up, doing theater, wanting to work in theater, thinking, you know, Broadway is the be all and end all. I think something I've realized that is really heartening to me and that I like share with as many artists who do this medium as possible is that it is just another rehearsal room, right? Every rehearsal room that you walk into is another rehearsal room with human beings who are flawed and wonderful and talented and difficult and lovely and scared and all of that is true in every rehearsal room that you walk into and I think that that was both hard for me to realize as I started hopping around all these different professional spaces and also really good for my anxiety and really good for my imposter syndrome to realize that we're all just there trying to do a thing we're all trying to make some work. And I think the sort of logistical realities of 
limited runs versus open-ended runs, the logistical realities of a three-week rehearsal period versus a 10-week rehearsal period, that all of that absolutely factors into how the work can work, what you have to focus on, how quickly you need to sort of drop some tools in the space and hope that they stuck. All of that is real, and that's not to diminish that. I just think it was really heartening for me as an artist to realize that all these different spaces you walk into, especially in this field where so much of my work is about putting humans first. So I'm like, oh yeah, in the end, we're all just humans in spaces trying to make some stuff happen. And, and in most spaces, really trying to do the best we can to make them happen well. Hearing you say the the bit about like every rehearsal room sort of just, just be in another rehearsal room is, uh, in our first episode, something we mentioned was the fact that in professional theater, we often are trying to recapture the feeling of high school theater uh, and the sort of the, the we're all in this together. We're, we're just a bunch of goons putting on a play kind of energy and that professional theater like it. This isn't high school theater. This is not the same thing as mm-hmm. amateur high school theater and it shouldn't be and it's something we've all trained a lot in to earn money to do professionally but at the same time even though that's true the the core of it like i think this just speaks to the fact that we can acknowledge and treat professional theater as something different from the thing we did as kids that made us fall in love with it, while also acknowledging that we are still just people in a room doing make-em-ups. And that is the core of it that we are trying to capture from childhood, not the not the power dynamic of the high school drama teacher making the 16-year-old take their shirt off. And those things get conflated, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that's something, you know, this is going back to that the sandbox concept, which I use a lot. I talk a lot about how can we together as a community create the sandbox in which we can play, right? To allow for play, to allow for discovery, to allow for magic, right? To allow for the creative process that is so not technical, right? That is so, that it is a little bit magical and it is a little bit always out of reach and it is a little bit spontaneous. And so how do we create a professional space that acknowledges the power dynamics, that acknowledges each individual member's needs in that space, that acknowledges that this is a job, right? That acknowledges that we have lives outside this job so that we can create that container that then inside of it, with confidence that we know where the bounds are, we can then play, have make-em-ups, have discovery, have magic. And, and I think that that's probably not unique to the theatrical artist's career. I'm sure that's true for novelists and visual artists and et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that that's to me, at least part of this role and part of the kind of future of the theatrical landscape that I hope for is is to not think in binaries, maybe, is what I'm getting at, but is is to understand that we can have containers and we can have structure and that then because of that and, 
and actually sort of uplifted by that, we can play and discover and make community and make magic. That's the hope anyway. I feel like that's like such a lovely place to start wrapping up from. Yeah. Even though we didn't get to literally every bullet point, but we like we touched on things. But we've had such a good overview. We've really had such a great discussion. Cha, do you have a like what's a dream job? What is like a dream scene or dream play Mm. to work on as an intimacy and or fight director? That's such a good question. Um, I think the one that's coming to mind, right, or coming to gut or coming to whatever, however you want to describe it, um, is one that I read for the first time in college and never really left me and I've never gotten a chance to work on it which is Marisol by Jose Rivera. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Um, it's, it's just such a good play. And I've seen productions of it um, that have largely left me wanting <laughs> and yearning. Uh, and I've gotten to talk to Jose Rivera himself about the play and about how much I've loved it, which is, you know, talk about feeling magical. But I just think that specifically the intersections of my lived experience as a queer Latina theater maker and these expertise that I have in intimacy and violence and dramaturgy and that I have a love as a consumer of media and a consumer of art and an experiencer of art of all things sort of like fantasy and sci-fi and magic realism that that play to me both would be a sort of coming home to one of the first plays that sort of caught me as a reader, but also it just feels like a place where I could let my wings unfurl in some ways as an artist, as a person that I would just love, love, love to work on that play. So yeah, that was the first one that came to, that came to me. So one day. That sounds great. Here's hoping. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) One day, one day it'll happen. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all your expertise with us. Um, I think that like we have both learned so much about intimacy direction. And I think that our listeners will too. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really so honored that y'all invited me here and that you're creating space for conversations like these. Uh, it's just, it's really exciting to Yay, be a part thank of. So you for thank coming you. Coming on. And to all our listeners, this is just a reminder to join our Patreon uh, for this month only from now until the Tony Awards on June 11th. If you join our Patreon at any level, starting at the $5 tier, you will get access to our bonus content about this award season, including our reactions to the Drama Desk and Tony nominations, and some of our reviews of this season's shows. And beyond our award season content, when you join our Patreon at the $5 level, you'll also get access to our Instagram close friends, where Alex and I will be sharing all our hot takes and unpopular opinions that we don't want to put out there publicly or completely publicly. And our patrons at this level will also get access to Q&As with us and some polls about future episodes and be able to share their ideas for both the Patreon 
and the podcast in general. And we'll really just be growing the Partial View community through that space. So check it out at patreon.com slash partialviewpod. And then, of course, yet another free way to support and help us grow is just tell your friends about it. Share an episode that you think would be someone's jam in theater or mm-hmm. if you think like the whole show would be someone's jam, please share it. Oh, and uh, Cha, do you have anything to plug? Anything coming up? Oh, uh, yeah. I always forget to think about these things. I think, you know, this this is a little bit of a slow time for me personally, but you can always find uh, more information about all the things I do, you know, in the art world at www.callmecha.com. So look out for me there. I post announcements. I have little blurbs about all the different things I do. So callmecha.com is the place to go. And that website and all of Cha's socials will also be in the show notes. And final reminder is you can find the show notes as well as transcripts of all of our episodes at partialviewpod.com. Thanks so much, Cha. Bye-bye. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye.